Romans chapter 3 this morning. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, blood and righteousness, a tremendous anthem to head into what could be our final discussion on Romans chapter 3. I'm not going to say it will be. It could be. It could be. I just want to let you know that uh, many authors have actually written and said that this is the most uh, important section of Scripture. Now, I, um, as you know, I do not like to um, identify one part of Scripture as being more important than another. Right? Amen. You understand why? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Right? Uh, so I hate to say this is the most important passage in the Bible. Critically, what we could say is that this is the most uh, comprehensive uh, treatment of God's method of how someone can be saved or, or how someone could be made right with God. We could say that. That this is the most comprehensive treatment of God's method regarding how a soul becomes right with God. When we discuss God's method here... Um, we understand the purpose, again, for the writing of the book of Romans. This is not primarily uh, given to us as a doctoral thesis, if you will, from the Apostle Paul about the, the doctrine of salvation, as many have said. Uh, folks, this is a book of preparation. I think it's important and appropriate uh, this morning that we have uh, the group that I described earlier here with us this morning in relationship to disaster relief. How much time does a mayor of a city and all those who are in authority in a city put together in relationship to developing a plan for action when a disaster does hit an area, the people are ready to move, right? First responders all the way down to citizens in a neighborhood. They put a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of administration, a lot of people uh, behind the preparation for that disaster. So that disaster comes. Then everybody knows what to do. What do you see on the Weather Channel? Uh, days before a hurricane hits landfall in the eastern coast of Florida, city officials, and there's maybe the mayor standing behind a microphone and a podium. Who's lined up behind him? Various officials, city officials, state officials, federal officials possibly. And I always wondered, why are they standing behind him? Isn't there something better they could be doing with their time? I mean, this big storm's coming. Why are we paying these people to stand behind this guy or this gal giving all these preparatory instructions? Well, it's a, it's a representation of authority and information that's necessary for the ultimate physical protection of the citizens of that area, isn't it? I mean, that's a formal statement that they are prepared for the storm that's coming. And really, that's what the book of Romans is. It's a very formal statement to prepare the Roman citizens for the persecution that was going to be coming at the hands of Nero. 
these folks would be ravaged. They would literally be torn asunder. They would lose their lives for what they believed about Jesus Christ, who would be emperor of their soul. (laughs) Who would never make Nero emperor of their soul. But exclusively the Lord Jesus Christ. So so this is a, a very thorough treatment. The whole book of Romans for sure, but particularly this section of Romans chapter 3. And remind, to remind us that we need to not just rehearse and remember, remediate, uh, but to be able to articulate in detail for your own spiritual protection. Regardless of what affliction and what degree of affliction God ordains to come into your life, You personally, as to the individual here this morning, you are going to have to be able to have uh, not just an intellectual understanding of the information here, and not just an emotional assent regarding the information that Paul's written, but you're going to have to submit your will to the content of this information So that you know your soul is at rest with God and Jesus Christ. But then after that you're prepared. To have Christ as the anchor. Christ and his gospel as the anchor for your soul. When affliction comes. I have a friend of mine. Ted Strickland is his name. And he is a bivocational church planter in Providence, Rhode Island. And... uh, He spends the majority of several of his days a week giving tours uh, to tourists that come and visit Providence. And while he's on this bus taking people around Providence, Rhode Island, and some of you that understand the history of the state of Providence will understand why it was named so uh, in that particular city, and you'll understand its spiritual history. But if you look at the Rhode Island state flag... From what Ted tells me, it's got an anchor pictured in the flag, woven into the fabric of the flag. And the reason for that anchor, uh, all the young people are getting out their phones now Googling picture of flag of Rhode Island. Please do. This is what Ted tells me. I've not seen a picture of the flag for a while. Uh, But the, the, the anchor was pictured in that flag to let the citizens of the state of Rhode Island know that Christ desired to be their anchor in a time of political or local storm. And Ted, multiple times a week, has the opportunity with the microphone in his hand on his tour bus to give the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ just through the picture of that flag. But that's the idea here behind the the purpose of the writing of Romans, and then particular, the explicit detail of the gospel here in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Now, it's been a couple weeks since we've been here. We had the wonderful marriage conference. We had a, a glorious Easter, Lord's Day together. But I'd like to go back, and just for those of you who are guests, and for our memory's sake, I'd like to just highlight a broader outline of the book of Romans and narrow it down here uh, to where we currently um, find ourselves this morning. So what do we know? We know after the introduction to the book of Romans in chapter 1 uh, through verse 17 
that the theme of the book of Romans is given in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and then in chapter 1 and verse 18, what do we have? We have the first primary section of the book of Romans described, and we really call that uh, the wrath of God revealed, or in one word, condemnation. So from Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 through Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, we have this first major heading of condemnation. Who, who is condemned? Or, right, as we stated earlier, there's a question, right? Who is lost in the world? And the answer, all are lost in the world. All are lost. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And those who are condemned are divided up into three different groups. Do you remember? The irreligious, the moralist, and the religious. The irreligious, the moralist, and the religious. All of them are under God's sentence of judgment because all have fallen short of God's perfection. Section 2 of the book of Romans, the second major section, begins here in chapter 3 and verse 21. And while the wrath of God is revealed upon all men, because all men are sinners, here begins the good news. This is the righteousness of God revealed. And the righteousness of God is revealed as well to all men. So how does God save sinners? Well, he does so in Jesus Christ. So the second major section of the book has three subsections. And we're studying the first of three. How does God reveal his righteousness to mankind? He does so, first of all, by describing justification. What is justification? What does it, what does it mean to be declared right with God? What does it mean to be declared right with God? And that takes us from chapter 3 and verse 21 through chapter 5 and verse 21. The second subsection underneath this second major heading is in chapter 6 and 7. Sanctification. What does it mean to be declared holy? Remember, it's not being made righteous and being made holy. It's being declared righteous and being declared holy. That's chapter 6 and 7. And when we get to chapter 8, we'll see how the Lord preserves us. Preservation in Christ Jesus. Right? Justification, sanctification, and preservation. Now, when we go back to this, second, or this first major subsection underneath, how does God declare the world? righteous, and we study justification, we've been discussing the last several times together, what's God's method for declaring someone right with God? What is God's method? Well, it's very clear in verses 21 to 31 uh, that the theme here would be uh, righteousness. Now, there are multiple synonyms for this word righteousness in this section. You'll see the word righteousness. You'll see the word just or justifier or justification. As a matter of fact, uh, four times the word righteousness is mentioned and four times a, a, a form of the same is used. So eight times in this brief portion of scripture, the, the, the theme 
is very clearly laid out before us that man needs to be made right with God. They need to be declared righteous before God. And, and God has a method to that. God has a method. So for those of you who are guests, I told you that this was a pretty comprehensive, layered understanding. But remember, remember, disaster relief preparation. Okay. There's no time to speed through preparing a community to be safe in light of disaster. And there's really no time to speed through this particular section of scripture as well. So we're going to hunker down here a little bit again. And, and continue to, to persevere and, and move forward. Right. We will see other words in this passage that are important for us to understand in God's method of declaring someone right with himself. We'll see words like propitiation. And by the way, that word is only used four times in the whole New Testament. We'll see the word redemption, again, used a little bit more than propitiation, but not many times more. But we see the word justification in various forms of the word justification. And can I tell you this? Justification and or its forms are used 81 times as adjectives in the New Testament, 104 times as nouns, and 44 times as adverbs. In the New Testament. So many, many more times this theme of being righteous or being declared perfect before God is addressed in Scripture in relationship to the method of being made right with God as compared to other familiar words, propitiation and redemption uh, that we know. One author named Thomas Watson states this regarding the doctrine of justification or being declared righteous before God. Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous. Like a direct foundation, justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. The father of the Reformation said this regarding justification. When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God, and without it, the church of God cannot exist even for one hour. So that's why we take our time in outlining and uh, digging through this particular passage, which is so layered with information regarding the method of being declared right before God. You see, folks, no one can stand before God unless they're perfect. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
What that simply means is God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So what that more simply means is God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And my friends, it's not only part of his nature, it's what he requires in his presence. God cannot and will never allow darkness in his presence. Not even one thread of darkness, one morsel of darkness, one crumb of darkness is not allowed in his presence. Think about the millennial kingdom to come, the thousand year physical reign of Christ on the earth. And how that's described in the scriptures. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ reigns from Jerusalem and the light of God in flesh, Jesus Christ, illuminates the whole world to the extent there's no need for physical sun to do the same. And in that environment, he rules with a rod of iron. In that environment, we finally find out for the first time in human history yet to come that there is such a thing as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Any soul in that environment that seeks to lift even a finger against the holy, righteous light of Jesus Christ will be immediately put to death. God cannot allow light or darkness in his presence in his very nature, he is light and will forever be light. And he requires light in his presence. So, you must be perfect. And you say, Pastor Tim, that's impossible. Of your own volition and of your own self, you're right, it is. But that's why God sent Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And as we've said, he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and experienced a glorious resurrection demonstrating God's power through Jesus Christ over the influence of sin, which is death. And in his resurrection, we find the power. And in his perfect life, and in his sacrificial death, in him and all that he's done in his person and work, we find that when we turn from our sin and place our faith in him, we receive God's perfection. We have to have an alien righteousness, an alien perfection, something that's outside of ourselves, and it's not a thing, it's a person. You must know the righteousness of God, who is Jesus Christ, in order to enjoy God's presence now and for all of eternity. So that's why when Jesus in John 3 sat with Nicodemus in the lateness or the earliness of those morning hours in the darkness of night, when that religious person asked Jesus, how do I get to your presence or the presence of your father? And Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. There has to be a spiritual rebirth on the inside. And what else did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in order to be brought into my Father's presence, you have to own me. You have to have me to be welcomed into his presence. 
and that happens through new birth. And so I encourage all of you that have uh, not understood what it means to be perfect in Jesus Christ, to, to make sure that you begin to at least consider this this morning, because none of us can boast about what tomorrow will bring. Okay? None of us know the day or the hour that the Lord has chosen for us to leave this old world. And we need to be prepared. So we've taken this description of this method of being declared right with God and divided it into several sections here. We looked at the last time we were together, verses 21 and 22, which we called our right standing described, our right standing before God described. You can go back and watch and or listen to these uh, sermons on our website. Our right standing described. In the third part of verse 22 and verse 23, we uh, studied together our right standing required, described and then required. In verse 24, we investigated our right standing as it's presented. Our right standing presented. And we discussed together here some critical words in relationship to God's method of declaring us right before God. Not just justification, but the word redemption. And I find it very interesting here that the Apostle Paul, with the help of the Holy Spirit, chooses three words that would have been commonly known to even men who were not saved or not part of the church community. And just so you know, the words justification, redemption, and propitiation were all very popular, well-known terms in the non-church world of that day. Redemption was a Greek term that was commonly used because slaves were able to purchase their way and or be bought out of servitude to their master. The word redemption just means to purchase out of slavery. And isn't that what happens to us when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, right? We were once bound to sin, slaves to sin, and only through the miraculous power of being made right with God in Jesus Christ can we realize what it means to no longer be servants to sin. Propitiation. Wow, big word. That was a common word in that day. That was a common word because that word was used in pagan religious practices for millennia of time before Paul writes Romans. Back into Old Testament history and even in current history as Paul writes Romans, even pagan religions would sacrifice animals and human beings to atone for their wrongdoing before their gods. Why? Because when we do wrong, the gods are angry. The gods are angry. And so we must sacrifice to appease the wrath of our gods. Right? That's what we've got to do. And of course, that's not biblically supported at all. But this was a term commonly understood in paganism. And then justification. That was just a legal term often used in courts of law. Particularly in this Roman culture for sure. 
you either are guilty or you are acquitted. Right? Even in our culture, right? When there's an acquittal, you can never be tried for that crime a second time. Right? There's no double jeopardy. Even if you're guilty and they tried to prove you wrong again, they couldn't do it because you're acquitted. Okay. You're acquitted. So these three terms, redemption, propitiation, and justification, are not just doctrinal terms that we need to know. Uh, they were commonly understood even by unbelievers of their day, of Paul's day. But this is really our right standing presented. Our right standing presented. In verses 25 and 26, we saw our right standing before God announced. It's announced. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. And this is where we'll spend the remainder of our time uh, this morning. Whom God displayed, this is Jesus Christ, publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God desires to be just and the justifier to those who believe. Well, how? Here is our right standing announced. There's something he's describing here that had happened for quite a long time. He says here, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. He passed over the sins previously committed. Now, this would have been a description of those who violated God's law before Jesus Christ was put to death on the cross. Right? And this would have been two sides of one particular dislike coin, if you will, expressed towards God. Right? Unsaved people don't like it when God doesn't bring quick justice, do they? I mean, think about the Facebook Live killer on Easter Sunday. Right? What, do, what do even unsaved people want in relationship to that guy who flees the scene and ends up taking his life in Erie, Pennsylvania? What do they want? They want quick justice. Unsaved people don't have patience when it comes to bringing justice on violent criminals. Right? And that's okay if they don't want patience. <laughs> they should be brought to justice. Right. But over a millennia of time, mankind has an issue with why does God let bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow this? Why did God allow that? And we said, remember, at the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 21, the proper question is, why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? We went back to Romans 2 where we, we highlighted it. It's the goodness of God towards all people, all kinds of sinners that should lead men to repentance from their sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But God in his forbearance passed over sins. This is a, an, a, a phrase describing God's really infinite mercy. God withholding from mankind what they do deserve. Withholding that punishment for our Savior. Withholding our punishment to be placed on the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And what does it say here? For the demonstration, I say, for the public display of his righteousness, God's righteousness in Christ at the present time, so that God would be, isn't it interesting? So that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, folks, Jesus doesn't justify. God justifies by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, folks, God doesn't redeem men. Jesus redeems men. You see, folks, it's not man that appeases the wrath of God. It's Jesus that appeases God's wrath on behalf of man. But God declares men just in Jesus Christ through the sacrifice of the ultimate just one. Jesus Christ. I want you to back on your own time, for sake of time this morning, uh, go back and look at the prepositional qualifiers of each one of these words, redemption, propitiation, and justification. All right. um, the prepositional qualifiers, in Jesus Christ, or by Jesus Christ, or faith in Jesus Christ, or so forth, on your own time. I have these outlined here. They're pretty simply found, uh, but really, the justification of God, right? the announcement of being made right with him is primarily done through the work of Jesus Christ and having faith in the same. Look at verse 27. Now, I previously announced that verses 27 to 31 would be part of our conclusion, but I'd like to give a title to our conclusion, if you will. Right. Our right standing reviewed. <laughs> our right standing reviewed. After looking and unpacking all of these aspects of God's method of being made right with God, I would like to review our right standing this morning. Right? Now, before I do, I'd like to show a little chart here that they're going to put up on the screen. And this chart is given by James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary. And I thought it might help you understand God's method a little bit more simply. God the Father, obviously, is the author of salvation. You notice the, the triangle is equipped with arrows. Right? So God is the justifier. And that's God's action towards declaring the Christian right before himself. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. This is his divine act expressed towards man. Notice the arrow. And then notice the arrow 
proceeding up towards God the Father from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the satisfaction of God's anger towards man. But all this is done in one act in human history. God is satisfied, man is redeemed, and God justifies all through the blood of Jesus Christ. All through the sacrifice of Christ and the cross for our sin. Now, I'll allow that to remain up there while we continue through the review of our right standing with God. Remember we said verses 27 to 31 is inclusive of three different questions that are very necessary for us to understand and review as we conclude this portion of Scripture. What does verse 27 say? Where then is boasting? Verse 29, right? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is God the God of the Jews only? And then finally, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? So this is a rehearsal by way of the use of interrogative or question to help us recall the method of God declaring a soul righteous. So question number one. Where then is boasting? The verse goes on to say, it is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by the law of what? Faith. By the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Basically, Paul's saying here, no one can brag about how they're going to get to heaven. No one can talk about their own devices of how they prepared themselves to be declared right before God. Um, Maybe you would, maybe you would agree with me. I would say that pride, the sin of pride, is probably the worst sin mentioned in Scripture. Pride. Some of us would say that pride is probably the source of all sin. Some of us might reference um, when Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. Others of us might reference Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. Would you go over there with me, if you will? Isaiah chapter 14, uh, real quickly, in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 14. And for those of you that uh, are not familiar with this text, this is really uh, the words of um, Lucifer, the angel of light, before his descent or at his descent, (laughs) at his time of falling from grace. This is Satan's words. Isaiah is stating what Satan had declared in his own heart. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Well, sin is sourced certainly in Lucifer. And I would say there's a lot of pride in those two verses centered on that personal 
pronoun I. But isn't that what we see in relationship to what Satan challenged Adam and Eve with in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden? Won't you be like God? It's all about me. And certainly none of us know anything about living in a culture that's all about me and self-promotion. Does anyone know anything about self-promotion in our culture? How many of you have never heard these two words, social media? (laughs) Nothing wrong with social media or its use. But isn't the tendency there to be all about self-promotion? All of us understand the sin of pride. And the guy behind this box understands it better than anybody. The chiefest of sinners when it comes to struggle with pride. All of us do. So there is nobody that can boast by saying, my personal knowledge of human religious history or I just feel good about myself and having done more right than wrong in my life and, and that has put me and made me or declared me right with God. I've, I've given this much money to my church or to my school or to my uh, charitable uh, acts and, and, and certainly that would justify me. And, and, and by the way, I have gone to church for years. My parents made me as a kid, but then I actually became to joy it as an adult And certainly, I have justified myself before God because of my knowledge, my feelings, my own goodness, and my own faith. And by the way, isn't that common today? Everyone has faith. I have my faith. I have faith. I have faith. None of those things justify us or give us the opportunity to be declared right with God. So who can boast? The, the question here is a rhetorical question. Who can brag? Who can boast? And the answer is nobody. Nobody. Question number two. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Well, he answers that pretty simply in verse 29. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. God is over all. There is only one way, there's only one method to being declared right before God. And it's the same way for everyone. One author called this uncompromising monotheism. There is only one God and one Lord, and he has described the method by which we can be declared right before him. Uncompromising monotheism. But it's good for all. Isn't that simple? Big words describing something so amazingly simple. Simple enough for this guy when he was five years old to get it. I could barely recite my alphabet And I could hardly read a chapter of a kid's book. But this amazing truth was lovingly shared with me. And I'm so glad that our almighty God was uncompromising in determining to make this method so simple. 
to understand. So the question is asked. I was reading one author recently in relationship to this uncompromising monotheism, and he asks three questions in his book. So, who may come to Christ? All can come to Christ. How may they come to Christ? Well, now we know how. Right? And when? At any time. Amen. At any time. Amen. For you, maybe today. How can you be declared perfect before Jesus, before God? By turning from yourself and everything you've done to try to impress him and just looking to the one who is exclusively impressive in God's eyes, that's his son, Jesus Christ, and just turn your life over to him. Amen. Turn from your sin and make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. Just say, I believe, Lord, I get this. This is really that simple. And thank you for making it so lovingly simple. All may come in Jesus Christ at any time. And final question as we wrap up this morning. Verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Do we nullify the law when we place our faith in Jesus Christ? And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, the law is actually established. In other words, when you truly come to know Christ as your Savior... It's not that you become a law keeper. Hang on with me here in this final detailed part of this very long sermon. You become a perfect law keeper because you trusted the one who perfectly kept the law. So before God, you're declared perfect through the perfect law keeper. But when the perfect law keeper takes residence in your soul, and you're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit who places you into union and oneness with Christ, he has the ability to give you not just the perfection of Jesus Christ, but his character also. Amen. So you think of the moral code of the law, the moral part, you know, have no other gods before me, honor your father and mother, uh, you know, uh, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, right? Those Ten Commandments that many of us are familiar with. Before we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, the law is given to us to prove to us that we're sinners because all of us have broken that moral code. There would be no one in this room that would stand and say, I have perfectly kept the Ten Commandments every day of my life. Nobody in their right mind. So the law was instrumental to tell us, guess what? You're incapable of keeping it. It was our schoolmaster to lead us to the ultimate perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ. And so when you trust him as your Lord and Savior, he tr miraculously transforms your ability to live as a slave unto righteousness and no longer a slave to sin. So, do we then nullify the law through faith? What does it go on to say in Romans chapter 6 and 7 when we get there? Should we just go out and sin as much as we want because we know Jesus? And Paul says what? God forbid. No way. No way. When Jesus saves you, he transforms your ability to live unto righteousness. 
So that's why we summarize it with this phrase often. When you come to know Christ as your Savior and you're growing to become more like him, you'll never be practically sinless, but as you grow in him, you'll find yourself sinning less and less. And we won't ultimately be practically like him until we see him. Positionally, we're perfect before God. Because we have him, but in our daily lives, his ability, demonstration that we have owned the perfect law keeper is that we gradually become more like him in our character day by day. And when we see him, we're never going to have to worry about practically messing up anymore. <laughs> and we praise God for that. So this is just simply our right standing reviewed by the use of three questions. And if you had any further questions regarding this, I'll finish with this in three minutes. So Pastor Tim, we hear the word faith all the time. Just have faith. Just have faith. I asked you early on to go through these verses and underline every time the word faith is used. Faith is, faith is necessary. But let me tell you what faith is here scripturally. Faith includes these three things. Faith includes these three things. It does include knowledge. And that knowledge about who Jesus is and your desperate need for him comes through the word of God. Knowledge through the word of God. The Bible says later on, we'll study Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. You must understand what the Bible says is your need or the method of being declared right before God. It does require knowledge. This is the 500th year of the Reformation, from what I understand. One of the leaders of the Reformation said this, faith is defined by God's word. Faith is born out of God's word, and faith is sustained by God's word. It requires knowledge. You've got to know, but that's here. That's intellect. So we haven't even begun to comprehensively handle these short verses. <laughs> and we've spent four or five weeks on them. We've just touched the tip of the iceberg, all right? But you have to have this knowledge, at least this much. And then what does that have to do? That has to move your heart. Faith is, and includes knowledge from the word of God, and it requires a moving of the heart. There is an emotional response to the information presented in the word of God. Oh, my word, I am that much of a sinner. Oh, my word, Jesus Christ died for my sin. Oh, my word, I can't believe he would do that and then offer me to be made perfect in the sight of God for all of eternity. Is it really that simple? Oh my goodness. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Man complicates things when it comes to the right way to God. God simplifies things. Is it really? Do you remember that moment when you realized, is this really all it takes? Is this really all it is? And that's a, what relief, right? It gripped your emotion. But at that moment, you're still not declared right before God. Because you had it here. And it's moved your heart. But now what do you have to do? You have to surrender your will. Right? Knowledge and emotion don't save. But what does faith require? It requires commitment. Lord Jesus, I hear, I'm moved, I'm amazed, but now be Lord of me. 
I take you as my Lord and my Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together this morning.